Acts 1, 1 to 5, for a sermon I've entitled, Those First 40 Days. And this is what it says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive, after his sufferings, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for that which the Father had promised, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Have you ever heard of numerology? According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, numerology is the study of the occult meaning, meaning hidden, significance of numbers. So just as astrology is the study of stars to discern their hidden influence on our lives, so numerology is the study of numbers to understand their secret meaning known to those who can decipher them. A recent Vogue magazine article on numerology described it as, quote, the study of the mystical relationship between numbers, letters, and patterns. In as in uh, the method of divination, numerology is a tool to use for great, gaining greater knowledge of self and others and how to relate to the world at the large. It can also reveal our true desires and what we need to fulfill them, as well as a, be a great tool to understand karma and what we carry with us from relationship to relationship. Doesn't that sound like something you'd see in Vogue magazine? Well, the practice of numerology actually goes back thousands of years. Archaeologists found an inscription in the 8th century B.C., which tells us that the Assyrian king Sargon II, quote, built a wall at uh, uh, Khorasbad 16,283 cubits long to correspond to the numerical, numer numerical value of his name. Now the term for that is gematria, which is where you assign a value to each letter of a person's name. So for instance, my name is Doug. D is the fourth letter in the alphabet, so that'd be equal to four. O, 15. U, 21, and G, 7. So if you add them all up, the numerical value of my name is 47. Now, if you multiply that by my shoe size and divide it by the street number I live on, voila, the numerologist can tell me whether I'll make money in the stock market this year. By the way, there is actually one example of gematria in the Bible. Speaking of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, John tells us that all people, great and small, rich and free, slave will be forced to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads so that, that no one can buy or sell unless they had that mark, which is the name of the, uh, of the beast or the number of his name. By the way, that's not hard to believe that day is coming, is it? This calls for wisdom. Let the pe person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for the, his number is the number of a man, and the number is 666. Now that one example, though, does not mean we should go looking in the Bible at numbers for uh, hidden mystical meanings. I mean, when you read that Jesus uh, commanded his disciples to cast their net over on the other side, and it says that they brought up a, a, a net full of fish, and there were 153 fish, we're not supposed to see some deep meaning in the number 153. But you know, it is interesting as you read through the Bible to see how certain numbers recur time and again. There were seven days at creation. Joshua and the Israelites marched around Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day, they did it seven times. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. How about the number 12? There's 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples. 
Speaking of the new Jerusalem, John tells us that it had a great wall, high wall, with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The walls of the city had 12 foundation stones, and those were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Earlier in that book, we find 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. How about one more number? 40. Well, when the flood came, there were 40 days of rain. What about when the law was given on Sinai? Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 days. Goliath taunted Israel and challenged them for 40 days. And then Jonah, when he went to preach to the Ninevites, he said, yet 40 days and God will overturn Nineveh. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days before he was tempted by Satan. Well, here we have another 40-day period. Just as the people waited for Moses to bring down the law from the mountain, so Jesus spent 40 days preparing his disciples for the coming of the Spirit from heaven. Now, the big event that's recorded, the giving of the Holy Spirit, is found in chapter 2. But in this first chapter, it speaks of those first 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven. So today we want to look at how Luke opens his uh, um, book of Acts here in this first chapter to see what was going on in those first 40 days after the resurrection and before the ascension of Christ to heaven. So why don't we pray and ask God's help. Our Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy as we go through this to see its relevance to our life, what you did at that time, and what you promised to do yet for your people today. So bless us, open our hearts and minds, clear our thoughts of other things that would distract us from hearing your word, because it is your word. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what should we say about these first 40 days? Well, the first thing we need to say is that it was a time of transition. A time of transition. You know, there's some important transition points in a person's life. What are some of them? Well, the first one has to be when you're born. I mean, think about it. Before you were born, everything was quiet and serene. You didn't even have to worry about eating. You were fed through a cord into your stomach. But then your mother started groaning and crying, and she pushed you out into the world. And the first thing the doctor did was lift you up by a leg and slap you on the bottom to make you cry. Welcome to the world. Well, other important turning points is when you learn to crawl, when you learn to walk and speak. Your first day at school, do you remember your mom cried, but secretly she was glad that you were gone? <laughs> oh, getting your license, graduating from school, getting a job, getting married, having kids, someday retiring and moving to Florida. All of life is a process of transitioning from one phase to the next. Well, here in this first 40 days, Jesus and his disciples were preparing for a transition, an important one. Jesus had been with them for three years, but now he was about to leave and return and go back to heaven. Listen how Luke opens this chapter. He says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, last week in the introduction, I pointed out that Luke wrote uh, both his gospel and the book of Acts to the same person, a man he refers to in the gospel as most excellent Theophilus. That probably indicates that he was a person of high status and most likely a Roman official. Perhaps he was one who was interested in Christianity at the time or had recently become a believer. It's possible that Luke might have actually been Theophilus' doctor. When John Calvin wrote his two-volume Institute of Christian Religion, he addressed it to uh, Francis I, king of uh, uh, France. He was hoping to convince the Catholic monarch of the truth of the Protestant faith. Well, Luke addresses his work to Theophilus. Now notice 
that Luke points out that in his first work, meaning the gospel, it was composed about all that Jesus had begun to do and to teach. The gospel gives the records of Jesus' teachings and his deeds. The deeds, especially his miracles, authenticated his teachings, and the teachings explained his deeds. Jesus ministered to both body and soul, and of course, that's what the church has adopted, that twofold ministry. Did you know that the establishment of hospitals was primarily by Christians? That's why so many still bear the names of Christian figures in their titles. St. John, St. Jude, St. Luke's. And even today, one out of five hospitals are still religiously affiliated. Christians set up orphanages. They started schools. Most churches like ours have Sunday schools. Do you know that only began in the 1800s? A man named Robert Rakes was looking for ways to reach poor kids with the gospel. And since at that time, children usually worked six hours a day, sometimes ten hours a day, the only time they had off was Sunday. And so he decided to hold classes for these kids to teach them how to read and to write. And he used the Bible as a textbook. The Africans used to say that when the Christians come to the country, they dig well, set up hospitals, and build schools. When the Muslims come, they overthrow the government. Well, the responsibility to care for people, both body and soul, is one that Christians have today as well. Paul told Titus this. He said, our people must learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs so they will not be unfruitful. Titus 3.14. Now notice that Luke said that this was all that Jesus began to teach. He's implying that the second volume, the book of Acts, records all that Jesus continued to do and to teach. Jesus' ongoing work would be through the ministry of his apostles, who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. These are the ones he had chosen by the Holy Spirit and given orders to. These are those. Do you remember what Jesus told the twelve? He said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Now, that was true for them in a specific way, but that's true for all Christians in a general way. If you're a believer, God chose you from before the foundation of the world for salvation. And then in time, he called you to faith to Christ through the hearing of the gospel. And after saving us, then we're to bear the spiritual fruit of living transformed lives. Those first 40 days after Jesus' resurrection was a time of transition. Before that time, everything was moving towards the cross. But since that time, everything was moving, flowing out of the cross. Before, they were being taught and discipled by Jesus, but now they would teach and disciple others for Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us Jesus began his work. Acts tells us how he continues his work. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Haiti will not prevail against it. The book of Acts shows how he built his church and how the gate of Hades could not prevail against it. Well, the second thing that's true of this time was it was a time for confirming faith. For confirming faith. A number of churches have confirmation. Anglican churches, Greek Orthodox, Lutheran, some Methodist churches. In the Catholic Church, it's actually one of the sacraments. Now, in their understanding of, of uh, confirmation, a person is, becomes a believer when they're baptized, and then years later, they'll be confirmed to confirm that the faith is real. Now, we're an oddity. We're a Baptist church that holds confirmation. It's a three-year program that we have for the kids. They go through Genesis and Matthew and Romans. We call it confirmation, not because we think we can confirm their faith. Only God can do that. And we make that abundantly clear when they go through confirmation that this does not necessarily mean that they're saved. Instead, what we're confirming is that they have a basic understanding of the gospel and the Christian faith. As I said, only God can confirm people in their faith. 
The church can teach them. We can instruct them. We can fill their heads, but only God can change their hearts so that they truly believe. Now, Luke speaks of Jesus confirming and strengthening the faith of the apostles during this first 40 days after his resurrection, and he did so by appearing to them alive during that time. Look what it says. To these, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing over a period of 40 days. A number of years ago, Josh McDowell, a Christian apologist, wrote a book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Luke tells us here that Jesus gave much evidence, many convincing proofs that led the disciples to the verdict that Jesus was not only alive, but that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. You know, the atheist Peter Atkins debated the Christian apologist William Lane Craig. I have a video of it. During the cross-examination session, uh, Peter Atkins dismissed the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection by saying that people in that day were simple-minded, gullible, and they believed all kinds of incredible things. He said those people in that day were, they led, led boring lives. So they invented the story of the resurrection because they were bored? But the picture that you find as you read through the New Testament Gospels of the disciples after the resurrection is not one of gullible country bumpkins ready to believe everything that was reported about Jesus rising from the dead. Quite the contrary, when the women came back from the tomb saying that they found it empty and an angel had told them Jesus rose from the dead, we read these words in Luke's Gospel. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe. Standing alone, crying beside the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, she thought the man who came up behind him was the, uh, the gardener. So she asked him if he knew where Jesus' body was so she could retrieve it and properly care for it. You know, I have to say here, Paul said, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, I want you to think about Mary at this situation. By this point, her faith had been crushed. Her hope had evaporated. The only thing she had left was love. She wanted to at least show her love for Jesus by caring for his body. But then the gardener said, Mary. And instantly she recognized him. One of those two followers of Jesus walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I mean, they were dejected and sad. They didn't recognize a stranger who approached them along the roadside. He said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus of Na the Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and of all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death to crucify him. But we were, past tense, hoping that it was he who would redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all of this, on the th it's the third day since these things happened, but some of our women among us amazed us, for when we went to the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman had said, but him we did not see. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, O oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scripture. And you remember when they invited him home for dinner? When Jesus lifted up the bread to bless it, suddenly their eyes were open and he vanished. Well, after picking their jaws up off the floor, they ran 10 miles back to Jerusalem, burst into the upper room, but before they could say anything, one of the other disciples shouted out, the Lord really has risen and he's appeared to Simon. 
So their pulses are racing, wide-eyed, everyone's speaking at once, and all of a sudden they look into the corner of the room. <gasps> it's Jesus! Or his ghost. While they were telling these things to each other, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened, thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe because of the joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? <laughs> they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it, ate it before him. You remember, Thomas wasn't there that, that night. When they told him that Jesus was alive, he just outright refused to believe. He said, look, unless I see his hands, the imprints of the nails, and put my fingers in the place of those nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, eight days later, he was gathered with him this time. Doors were shut and locked. And suddenly, Jesus is standing again in their midst. Hey, Thomas, come here. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And stop being unbelieving and start believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. You know, Thomas always gets the moniker of being doubting Thomas. But you know he's the first person who clearly stated that Jesus was God. Let's remember him at least for that. Well, Thomas might have been slow to believe, but once he saw the resurrected Christ, he drew the correct, uh, correct uh, conclusion, identifying Jesus as his Lord and God. But Jesus said this to him. He said, blessed are you because you've seen. He said, but even more blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He's talking about people like us. Peter wrote this. He said, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. By the way, speaking of Peter, what about that appearance of Christ to him and a few of the other disciples on the seaside? Jesus had some things he had to hash out with Peter because of the denial. Paul tells us of a number of occasions that happened besides these. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, Speaking of Jesus, he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After this, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. And then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all, to, he appeared to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The story that we proclaim of a crucified and resurrected God-man is not some cleverly devised fable adapted from pagan myth stories. Rather, it's a record of real-life historical events that happen in time and space. Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Well, if the disciples were going to lay down their lives for the truth of the gospel, they needed to be fully convinced that the one they lay their life down for was indeed the resurrected Christ. That brings us to our third point, though. It was also a time for further instruction. This is the uh, uh, second part of verse 3. It says this, Luke tells us that during that time, Jesus was speaking to them things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, what's the kingdom of God? Well, sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses that phrase. The kingdom, is, of course, is a place where a king reigns. Now, God rules over the entire universe. We're told in Psalm 30, uh, 93, 1-2, it says, The Lord reigns, he's clothed with majesty. 
The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Or Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. But it's pretty obvious by looking in the world we live in that there's not very many people who are willing to submit to this authority and acknowledge this sovereignty. Psalm 2 asks this, Why do the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand together. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, meaning the Messiah, saying, Let us tear off their fetters. Let us cast away their cords from us. Sinful, rebellious man is not going to bow down before his creator and swear allegiance to their sovereign. We're going to go our own way. We're going to live by our own rules. How's that working out for us so far in this country? But the psalm goes on to say this, He who sits in heaven, meaning God, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then the Lord will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury and say, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is speaking of the future reign of Christ after he returns and is enthroned in Jerusalem to rule over the whole world. It says, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry at you and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Those who take refuge in the king's son are the believers who show themselves as such by submitting to the authority of the Messiah. The true subjects of the kingdom are those who give glad and willing obedience to the king. Now the Jews understood and believed that the Messiah would come and reign on earth after he established his kingdom. But what they didn't understand was what Jesus called the mystery of the kingdom. What was first revealed by Jesus was that this kingdom would come actually in two stages. Before it's established, on the earth in the end times and as a geopolitical reality, it's going to be established in the lives of his followers as more and more people believe the gospel and are added to his kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're already as believers in the kingdom. Notice believers are already in the kingdom, but we await the full manifestation of that kingdom which will come only after Jesus returns. The prophet Daniel, relating one of his dreams, wrote this in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That kingdom comes in two stages, and that explains why Jesus could say on one occasion, make it sound like the kingdom's here, and on another occasion it's not. He said to the Pharisees, he said, the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will you say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But then a short while later, he says to his disciples, he gives them a list of signs of end times events, and then he says this, So also, when you see these things happen, recognize the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation, meaning the generation that sees these things, will not pass away until all these things take place. Luke 21, 31 to 32. So in its first stage, the kingdom comes slow and steady, almost mysteriously, 
as more and more people are converted. In the second stage, it'll come with cataclysmic events. That brings us to our last point, though. It was also a time for waiting. You ever heard that phrase, hurry up and wait? Alan always says, oh, you know, you hear these kids say, I just can't wait for Christmas. Well, you don't have a choice. It's not coming any closer or quicker. Well, we're told here, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Yes, they had work to do. Yes, they had a mission to fulfill. But they had to be empowered to do this work, and they needed to be equipped to fulfill their mission. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus saying these words to his disciples. He said, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Zechariah 4.6 says, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. God's work is carried out by God's Spirit through God's people, as Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 8 to 11. But I tell you the truth, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not leave, the whole, uh, helper will not come. By the way, the, 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 some translations say the comforter. But that, that loses something over the years. When the word comfort was first brought into the Bible in the King James Version, the, the core of comfort is fort. Like forte in piano, it means louder. A fort is someplace that's... So the idea was to empower somebody. So the comforter means the empowerer would be a better way of putting it. It says, but when the helper comes to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment regarding sin because they do not believe in me, regarding righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer, uh, are no longer going to see me and regarding judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. By the way, that happens through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. I, over the years, I've been a pastor for 30 years, I've had people come to me at different times and say, you've been talking to my wife. So what do you mean? Well, what you said in the sermon on Sunday. I said, I haven't talked to your wife in six months. Well, it just sounds like you're kind of aiming that at me. <laughs> I had another guy one time, I was filling in at church, and uh, he, he was coming through the area. He evidently was like a vacation or something. He happened to stop at that church. And uh, that morning I preached. I'd never seen the guy before. I haven't seen him since. He came up to me afterwards, just angry as can be. He said, I suppose that whole sermon was directed against me. And I said, and you are, let me ask you a question. Was that sermon directed against him? Yeah. By me? No. Listen carefully. If you have a safe at home, a gun safe, some of you guys have that, and, uh, and all, you, know, you come home, only you know the combination, and your wife or your brother or whoever it is, and you come home and it's been open, a couple of your guns are missing. You know the house hasn't been broken. What do you know immediately? You know that the other person opened it up and took it, because there's only two people have the combination to the gun safe. Now listen carefully. If you're hearing the word of God preached like I'm preaching now, and there's a certain sense of conviction, a certain sense that somebody's been rifling through my stuff, a certain sense that somebody, there's only two people who have the key to your heart, the combination to your heart. You're one, and the other one is God. Which means it's the preaching of the word of God, because it's God's word, that brings the conviction. And that's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. He does the prep work for us. You just give the gospel. God's the one who changes the heart. Well, how should we apply these truths to the Bible today? I mean, can we apply them considering this was a unique period in the lives of the disciples? I think we still can. First of all, you might be going through some kind of transitional period in your life right now. You may not even know it. Like the disciples, God might be preparing you for something, 
greater work to serve him in a way that you never thought about. Now, we had to leave this building when they closed down for COVID restrictions. God was gracious enough to provide us a place to meet. We met at the funeral home that was closed up at that time. I always thought it was ironic that our church is Living Hope Church and we met in a funeral home. But we were there for a year and a half. God was gracious in providing it. But then the building was sold and now they're putting up a dollar store. So we had to come back here. And I would guess, like me, some of you were disappointed that it went that way. That was a nice place to meet. But you know, that place wasn't very big, was it? Perhaps God intends to bring people at a level that we wouldn't fit them in there. And if you're thinking, nah, I don't think so. That's just your unbelief. Well, unlike the disciples, we never will, unlike the disciples, we're not going to have our faith uh, confirmed by seeing the resurrected Christ. But Jesus said that's not a problem because if you believe and you haven't seen, he said you're actually more blessed. But you know what? We still want our faith to grow and be confirmed by constant hearing of his word. That's why you're supposed to come to church week after week and Sunday school and Bible study to get further instruction. The disciples got it from the mouth of Jesus. We get it from the written word of God. And as for waiting, all God's people in every age have had to wait upon the Lord to act on our behalf, to answer our prayers, to open up opportunities, to change hearts. But the one thing we do not have to wait for that they did was the coming of the Spirit because the Spirit has already come and every person who is a believer received the Spirit the moment they trusted in Christ. As a matter of fact, they believed this, received the Spirit before they did, otherwise they wouldn't have trusted in Christ. Oh. Through the indwelling Spirit, God has given us the power we need and has equipped all of his children to be witnesses to a lost world. As we go through the book of Acts, I'm asking God to inspire us that we would trust him through his spirit to empower us to do mighty acts. May God give us the grace because it's still the same God. Bless the Lord. Now let's pray. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Thank you for the fact that uh, the Holy Spirit has come and that those of us who are believers have received the spirit into our lives and our hearts and we see the result of it. Now, it's up and down in our own life. There's forward and backward. There's still a lot of sin remaining, but he's patiently working through us and working in us, Lord, uh, to bring other people to know Christ and to experience the joy that we have. And so, Father God, we pray that you'd do that. We pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds and give us grace so that we hear your word and find great joy in it and then spread the gospel message. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.